You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to brilliant, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Lindsay Stewart. Lindsay is an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Memphis. She writes about black feminism, African-American philosophy, and social and political philosophy. She is currently working on a manuscript entitled The Politics of Joy. In this episode, we talk about black joy, writer Zora Neale Hurston's joyful tendencies, resistance and refusal, and so much more. Hello, Lindsay, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. I I told you before we press record that I am extremely excited. I mean, I'm excited about every conversation that I have with everyone on the podcast, but I'm, I'm very, very, very excited for this conversation. But before we get into the details of our conversation, let me ask you this question. How did you get interested in philosophy? Yeah, well, I think the best way to put this is probably the time that I really scared my parents. So it was around, maybe I was 12 or 13. And my parents noticed that something was really wrong. I was a songbird at that age. So I would sing along with everything. I usually at that age, you're on the phone with your friends every chance you can get. I wasn't on the phone. In fact, I was mostly just close up in my room reading. So my parents pulled me aside and they assumed it was some sort of preteen drama and started asking me questions, assuming that that's what it was. So was it school? Is somebody bullying me? Is it a crush? (laughs) So finally, I decided I'm just going to put all of us out of our misery. So with tears in my eyes, I look up at them and I say, well, there is something I've been wondering about. And I'm sure in their mind, they're thinking, oh, my God, she's about (laughs) to ask us about sex. Right, right. No, what comes out of my mouth is, well, what really is the point of life if (laughs) we're all going to die anyway? Uh And that probably scared them more than my funk did. So I'm pretty sure they were ready to have the sex talk with me, but not ready to have a conversation about the meaning of life and and death with their 12-year-old. So. I think at that point, it was pretty clear I was going to be a philosopher. When did you become aware that you can ask these questions professionally? Was it when you went to high school, when you went to college? Mostly college. That's when I started to put some of these things together. I was a math major, so I was already drawn to proofs and logic and that sort of stuff. And it wasn't until I went to Pixie, Philosophy and Inclusive Key Summer Institute, that I realized that some of my other questions about race and gender could also be asked in a philosophical context. Okay. All right. Lizzie, tell me, who was Zora Neale Hurston? So Zora Neale Hurston was an African-American writer during the Reconstruction period. Her dates are roughly... 1891 to 1960. So she died just a few years before the 
Civil Rights Act was passed. She is a novelist, essayist, and anthropologist. Most of my work focuses on her essays. She's mostly known for their eyes were watching God and a penchant to piss people off. Uh, <laughs> when she, when you kind of think about bringing her into the discipline of philosophy, there's lots of contacts with people in the canon, or at least people we think of in African-American philosophy. So usually people are introduced to her through the context of a debate with Richard Wright over Black art. But she also knew W.E.B. Du Bois, and she fell out with him. She was also a student of Elaine Locke. She fell out with him, too. Oh, wow. She read some traditional philosophy. She loved Plato's Republic and Spinoza. She wanted to read Spinoza when she retired. And she celebrated for her feminist politics. She wrote a lot about the gender and class dynamics in Black communities. But she's not so celebrated for her racial politics because they were very controversial. Okay. All right. You know that that one of the characteristics of her work is her refusal to suppress what you call her joyful tendencies. Can you briefly explain how exactly she did this? Yeah. So one of the ways maybe to get at this is to remember the agenda during the Reconstruction Jim Crow period. So the tactic of a lot of Black leaders during that time, you know, like W.E.B. Du Bois, was to point out the ways in which Black people are discriminated against, make sure that our art reflects the interracial strife that we're experiencing in the nation, and call upon the conscience of white people to basically start acting right. Hurston often went against that agenda. Instead of focusing on interracial strife in the South, in her novels and essays, she usually focused on areas of Black Southern life that didn't have anything to do with white people. And two kind of quick examples of how she goes against this in her essays. One is from Court Order Can't Make Races Mix, where she denounced the Brown versus Board uh, Supreme Court decision to desegregate. She worried about the logic behind that ruling. And she wrote that part of what's at issue with this is that it's a court order for somebody to associate with her who didn't want her near them. And she felt that it meant that, or it relied upon a belief that there's no greater delight to Negroes than physical association with whites. However, she felt that she saw no tragedy in being too dark to be invited to a white school social affair. She also, in, I think it's How It Feels to Be Colored Me, one of her most famous essays, she wrote that she doesn't even feel pain when she's experiencing racism. She writes that being discriminated against does not make her angry. It merely astonishes her that someone could deny themselves the pleasure of her company. Mm, This sounds so much like a a, a quote that I heard Toni Morrison say. Uh, yeah. One time doing an interview. Interesting. Yeah, she you could see why she pissed people off. She really did not go with the agenda of the time. Wow. Wow. How do you describe joy in, in general and black joy in particular? So my sense of joy is closely tied to how Audre Lorde talks about the erotic in her essay, The Uses of the Erotic. And in that essay, Audre Lorde also makes some connections between the erotic and joy. So for Audre Lorde, the erotic 
when you experience this feeling of satisfaction, fulfillment, excellence, it enables critical assessment of your life in the sense that once you experience these positive states, it makes you put you in a position to not be so likely to accept those emotional states that oppression normalizes. So you're not going to be so satisfied with feeling despair anymore once you've experienced um, the erotic. I think joy functions in a similar way. For me, joy is this inward, expansive state of self-determination, and it foregrounds the relation of the self to the self. So Black joy would be a spaces of self-determination that foregrounds our relations to ourselves, to other Black folk, not so much the relation to our oppressors or to white folk. Give me an example of this. So, so I'm imagining this. There were a few examples, and I, I know a few years ago, hashtag Black Joy. There was also, I don't know if this was a hashtag or more of a, a, a viral video in which Black men were smiling. So, so give mm-hmm. us an example of exactly Black Joy in operation as you see it. All right. So one of the, one example of Black Joy or one space of Black Joy, I would say is Black music. So a lot of times Black music isn't addressed necessarily to white people. It's addressed to other Black lovers or it's addressed to Black people who made you angry. I think that in that sense, it's a space of self-determination that isn't necessarily focused or addressed to focused on or addressed to white people. You, you, You write in the book that you're working on, quote, on the one hand, the South is represented as a site of Black tragedy, bearing the brunt of the nation's center of racism. On the other hand, the South is often celebrated as the hub and home of much celebrated Black cultural products, such as our food, music, dance, traditions, etc. end quote. And you describe this as, as a dialectic of Black enchantment and Black tragedy. How have Black Southern, Southerners negotiated this dialect? And how do we see this negotiation in, in Hurston's own work? Yeah, so that's going to be a slightly, slightly long answer. Oh, no, no. Because um, there are some background to it. Okay. So there's a story to be told about why instances of Southern Black joy in the public sphere is rendered suspicious. And that has to do with the antebellum period. So the period right before the Civil War, you've got abolitionists, um, in particular white abolitionists, who are, you know, very firmly agitating for, you know, the uh, abolishment of slavery. You also have on the other side, people who are primarily for slavery, the basically slave owners and people like that. And there's two different arguments going on for people who are for slavery. They're pointing to the ways that African-Americans or, or the enslaved are singing and dancing. And there seems to be moments of joy and enslaved life. And they're saying, well, these people must be happy being enslaved. Look, they're singing. And then you've got the abolitionists who are saying, no, no, no. If you pay attention to the auction block, if you pay attention to the whippings, if you pay attention to all these other areas of suffering, you would see that slavery is wrong and Black people are not happy with it. So you have this in the public discourse, weaponizing of Black affect. You've got one side of you know, white people using Black sorrow as a way to point to the moral wrongs of slavery. And on the other hand side, 
people who white people who are using black joy to make an argument for slavery. Now, one of the things that's kind of interesting about both of these arguments is that they're addressed to white audiences. This is not black people internally arguing about whether slavery is wrong. We know that. This is white people using black affect. Now, black Southerners tend to respond to that with a Southern kind of saying, I ain't stunned white folks. And the translation of that, when someone says, I ain't studying X, they mean I've registered X, but I'm not going to let X bother me. Or in, you know, Beyonce's terms, I ain't thinking about you, so stop interrupting my grinding. This response doesn't romanticize the South. It doesn't deny that racism occurs. I've registered it, so it avoids the first prong of the dialectic, but it also doesn't catastrophize or affirm Black tragedy, and that's the other side of the dialectic. Instead, it uses these experiences of Southern racism as kind of cultural capital, saying, I am so intimate with the racism of whites that I'm no longer phased when they act up. And it allows you to observe this emotional boundary of, okay, I saw you act up, but I'm not going to let you disturb my inner peace, or I'm going to pretend like I'm indifferent to it. And kind of a contemporary expression of this is one of my favorite lines from Gucci Mane, Southern rapper. I don't get mad, I get millions. So we often see Hurston making this pivot in her essays. And one example is from her essay, The Pet Negro System. And I love this story because it's one that I can relate to. She's at an academic party, People are getting drunk and this friendly white northern liberal walks up to her and says, you know, I really care about black people and I feel horrible about the stuff that's going on in the South. Hurston's response is not to go into that saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me tell you about how awful it is to live in the South. Hurston's response is to call them on it and say, what are you talking about? And they get really upset at that moment. But part of what she's trying to play with is this assumption that Northern white liberals have that any discussion of the South has to involve stories of black suffering. How do you see that play out today? So you refer to this discourse as abolitionist and, and a neo-abolitionist discourse, and you kind of lay out um, how Hurston has done it. And you've given us kind of at least examples in, 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 in Black music of doing so. But how do, you, how do you see this discourse happening today? And yeah, I'll leave it at that for now. How, mm-hmm. how do you see this discourse? Is, do you think this discourse is still alive, uh, alive today? Yes. So let me... Contemporary examples. One is, if you remember, there's a moment where there's this hashtag going around of thank Alabama, thank Black women, when the Black women in Alabama mobilized to elect Doug Jones as senator of Alabama. Well, part of the issue with this response of thank Black women, thank Alabama, is that there was this assumption on the part of really Northern white folk 
that black people in Alabama were so, I don't know, bowled over by racism that they weren't going to come out to vote. There was this moment of just kind of surprise that we could mobilize in that way. And it really uh, belies the fact that we've forgotten a lot about the history of black people in the South. We mobilized with the bus boycotts. So that's kind of one example of how this still plays out of this assumption that black people just aren't in the South are so destroyed by racism that we aren't going to be able to do anything politically relevant. Another example, and I think in film or TV, is I love the show Queen Sugar. Now, and it's set in Louisiana, but I noticed over the past few seasons that Queen Sugar has shifted. Queen Sugar used to be about the relationship between three siblings and the relationship to the land that their father left to them. Now, all of a sudden, in these last few seasons, Queen Sugar has been more about them trying to take down white, uh, previous white uh, slave owners. So people who their family owned the siblings' family a few generations back. I don't really like that shift. And I see how I feel like that shift is more neo-abolitionist in the sense that um, it's no longer a story about how these black siblings relate to each other. It's more about them fighting white folk in the South. And why do we have to make that shift, basically? Or it's, it's almost like we have to justify these stories about the South. And one of the ways that we justify it is we're not going to romanticize it. We're going to point out the racism, too. There is a, a long tradition that suggests that the mode of agency in times of oppression is resistance, resistance, resistance. How does a, a politic of black joy challenge this? Yeah, so it seems like, at least for me, resistance is more bound up with a certain kind of recognition politics. So one way to think about this is uh, Angela Davis analyzes Frederick Douglass's resistance, his fight with the slave breaker, Mr. Covey. And one of the ways that she describes what happens when Frederick Douglass resists um, and fights back with Mr. Covey is that there's this really interesting dynamics of recognition that shifts. All of a sudden, the slave master or slave breaker, Mr. Covey, has to recognize that his very position of authority is dependent on Frederick Douglass. So one of the things that resistance can do that I think is really useful is change the dynamics of recognition between oppressed and oppressor. And this is because resistance is primarily an oppositional relationship between oppressed and oppressor, at least when we're talking about kind of in a Black context. I think that one of the differences between resistance and joy is that joy foregrounds the relation of the self to the self. So it, in a sense, it bisteps the relation of oppressed and oppressor. So, so here's the question. Someone might be saying, oh, yes, this black joy thing sounds great. <laughs> Self-determination, <laughs> relationship with the self. How would you suggest, and not to sound, you know, not to sound too uh, self-improvement-ish, right? But, but, <laughs> but, but realistically, right, how might a person tap into this joy? Because someone might say, listen, oppression is so intense as much as you're saying that this is so much different than resistance. Right. The 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 oppressor is not even in the picture. 
it's one thing to say that, right? But in practice, when you're living in times of oppression, when you're constantly seeing the oppressor, how can you tap into this joy? Yeah, so I'm a trained pragmatist, so I always go back to <laughs> habits and practices. Okay. <laughs> and how you can cultivate joy. So in my own work, one of the kind of the areas that I'm really interested in is root work. Uh, so these are spiritual traditions that we might call hoodoo or voodoo. They have some aspect of West African cultural practices woven into all of these interesting innovations that occurred when the slaves basically ended up in the in the new world through kidnapping. So one of the things that's interesting to me about practices of root work is that when you look at the folklore and, and look at um, just kind of looking at slave narratives and those sorts of things, it seems like those spiritual practices were one way that the enslaved folk and also African-Americans were able to develop a sense of self that wasn't just tied up with the slave master. And one of the tangible aspects of root work is gardening. And that's kind of what I do to uh, touch into to joy. And if you think about, you know, there's a long tradition of thinking about gardening as an expression of not only beauty, but self-definition. So if you think about Alice Walker's In Search of Our Mother's Garden, for people who were blocked off from certain avenues of, of expression, like being able to go to college. She found that there were these areas where they were able to get that self-expression out. And it turns out it was in you know the gardens of their mothers. That's interesting. I'm sitting here thinking, so these are some, some individual things that we can do. And I wonder if when you were talking, I was thinking about organizations and, and sometimes people outside of particular communities criticize exclusive, let's say racially exclusive organizations as being kind of racist or, or about segregation, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm wondering if racially exclusive organizations or groups is a way of tapping into, into joy. And I'm, I'm thinking particularly about, we might even say Black fraternities or sororities. You might think, you know, historically and also con- contemporarily, Black organizations, particularly because we're talking about Black joy, have become spaces in which one can develop those. And I wonder, have you thought about that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why Hurston was pretty hesitant about calls for desegregation um, and why she in some ways opposed the, the method in which integration was kind of being enforced by the Brown versus Board Supreme Court decision. She worried about what happens to those spaces of of Black communities where we can develop a sense of self and how we relate to each other, kind of not necessarily outside of white folk, but doesn't center on white folk. What happens to those spaces when the, the mandate is that we integrate, but it we haven't addressed issues of anti-Blackness in society as a whole. That's one of the reasons why these spaces need to continue to exist. Right, right. And so now that we know how to tap into it or some ways to <laughs> tap into it, uh, what are some of the political effects of doing so? I mean, you've already alluded to it, but what are some of the political effects of doing so? Yeah, I think for Hurston's time, the, one of the major political effects of, of insisting on Southern Black joy in the midst of, of violent racial strife in the 
in the, well, really across the nation, is that there is a way that self-empowerment can come through self-definition. And sometimes I think, or at least for me, part of what worried me about only talking about resistance in these conversations is that I thought we were in danger of defining ourselves solely in terms of how we relate to our oppressors. And I think that's a really limiting way of thinking about yourself, thinking about the measure of your life. And I think a lot of political options can show themselves when you have a more positive vision of where you want to go instead of just defining yourself in terms of how we beat the oppressor. I think another political effect, and maybe this is more of a side effect, is that when Hurston would insist on Black joy, it also exposed the latent racism of Northern white liberals that she was in conversation with. So whenever she would contest those stories that say basically racism is just in the South, she noticed that a lot of Northern white liberals would get angry about this. And I think part of the reason why they would get angry is because it's very easy to just kind of blame racism on the South and not deal with your own latent racism. And when she was pushing them in that way, that's kind of what she was trying to get at with them. In addition to Hurston, you reference a lot of writers in your manuscript, and I think you seem to do a lovely job at seeing the philosophical and what many may term or describe as non-traditional philosophy. So I, I just want to know, how exactly do you do this? <laughs> <laughs> so I think one of the most important books that I've read is Angela Davis's Blues Legacies and Black Feminism. It's one of those books that really changed the way I thought about doing philosophy. And that book, she is piling or kind of working through records of blues singers, uh, Black women blues singers. And she's developing philosophical concepts from this rich archive of Black women blues singers. That was a different model of philosophy for me. And it's one that I strive to, to do in my own work. And it helps that my figure is, she's interdisciplinary. She fits into a lot of different canons. She was a novelist, so she fits into literature. She was an anthropologist, so she fits in anthropology. To some degree, sociologists claim her. So it's very easy for me to, in order to really do Zora Neale Hurston justice, I have to read across disciplines. As, as far as contemporary Southern writers, and I, I'm mentioning contemporary Southern writers because, I mean, I, I, there's a lot of good work happening or coming out <laughs> from the South. And, and I wonder if you could give us some recommendations. So I'm going to limit you here. Can you, can you recommend <laughs> one fiction, from, from particularly a Black Southern writer, and one nonfiction book that you'll recommend to us? Yeah. So with nonfiction, I would totally suggest Zandria Robinson. She is a phenomenal sociologist who is working primarily out of Memphis with some of her work on Southern Black life. She's also really tapped into African-American music. So she's written some stuff on Erica Badu and Beyonce, who are both from Texas. So she's really got kind of a rich, I think a rich account 
of the complexity of Black Southern life. For fiction, I would say Attica Locke. She's a mystery writer. She also wrote for the show Empire. Most of her stuff is focused on, at least the mystery stuff is focused on the South, in particular, Texas and Louisiana. And she really captures the complexity of race relations in the South in a way that I think avoids the abolitionist trap. Well, thank you so much for that. So so here, here's another question pertaining to the South. I um, and I'm going to try not to give an, an, ex- an example, a real life example. here. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking of. Let's talk about the Southern accent. And I want to I want to I want to I, I know what you think about this. I could ask you this off record, but I, I'm dying to know now. So so the, no, usually I mean, we're, we're both academics. And yeah. when you think about kind of the typical academic accent, it's 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 kind of a northern accent. Right. Yeah. And particularly in philosophy, we seem to have biases around accents. So if you have a German accent, we think yeah. you are like very philosophically intelligent. If you have yeah. a British accent, we think that you are really philosophically intelligent. But I found people, particularly black Southern grad students who had very thick Southern accents and whose voice and philosophical contributions were minimized as a result of that. And I wonder, have you, have you thought about that? What is your response to that? Yeah, just, just share with me your thoughts about s- Southern accents and, and, and intelligence and intellect and, and negotiate and maneuvering around that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the ways that regionalism can overlap with racism. So if you remember that a majority of Black folk in the U.S. live in the South, I think one of the ways that people can still talk bad about Black people uh, without directly saying it is to code it in terms of, you know, you're being from the South. And I experienced a lot of that when I was in graduate school, because I went to graduate school uh, up north. And there was definitely an advantage to not sounding Southern in those academic circles. But, you know, to some degree, I think it's fun to mess with people. So and maybe I inherited that a little bit from Hurston. So sometimes you can play up the accent and just kind of see what happens. Mm, interesting. Have you, have you done that before? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I want to know what was what was the results of such an experiment? <laughs> uh, so with my students at this northern institution, I would play up the accent and they loved it because it was something that was different. It didn't work so well with my fellow academics, but I did it anyway. I also love hats, which is another indication of Southernness. So I would wear hats wherever I went and just kind of mess with people in that way. And usually people wouldn't bother me too much. Because they knew that, well, they knew my personality and that if they said anything that I would go after them for it. But there were moments where I was made to feel uncomfortable. Like I I remember very shortly after being kind of moving up north to this, you know, northern college that one of my professors asked me at one point, oh, so when you get mad at your professors, do you go home and make voodoo dolls? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) You know, and my response was, no, we don't do voodoo 
dolls in Louisiana. If I wanted to hex you, there are other things that I would do. And then just walked off. <laughs> right, right, right. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's making me think about, so I was, I was raised in, in, in Norfolk, Virginia, not too far down South, but still enough to have kind of what we would call kind of a, an accent, a Southern accent of sorts. And uh, slowly but surely after high school, I moved further up North. So I, I, I lived in Maryland, then I lived in, in New York, then Boston, et cetera, et cetera. And so my accent is kind of weird, but it really comes out when I talk to my sister who has been living in Mississippi for over two decades, right? But I remember when I moved up up north for the first time, and this is when during high school, I was like a junior in high school, and I moved from Virginia to, to Wilmington, Delaware. And I had to introduce myself to the class because, you know, that's what you used to do. And I remember when I introduced myself and I basically said, you know, my name is Maisha Cherry and I'm from Norfolk, Virginia. And everyone bust out laughing. Oh. And I, of course, I didn't get the joke. I didn't see what yeah. was funny. But, you know, I, I, I like I like to entertain. So whatever. But I noticed, <laughs> you know, what was funny was the way in which I talked. And I can imagine if I was a New Yorker and I introduced myself, it would not have been laughter. Right. So I'm always, I'm always interested and mind you, my, my accent has changed and, and, and in some ways I know how to, you know, I, I recognize when it changes and, and et cetera, et cetera. But I always think about if I stayed in the South and, and I had the accent that I had when I was a teenager, you know, what would be the negotiation and the academic mm-hmm. spaces that I face, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And even times when I'm teaching, I call it getting black, right? Which, <laughs> which basically means I'm getting real comfortable with my tongue. And so, and so it gets a, my words gets lazy, which I kind of consider black talk, but it's really black Southern talk. Right. And I do that for emphasis for my, for my students, but I recognize that what's happening is I'm tapping into my, my Southern side. So I just, I just wonder about what do you think about, what have your experience been? What do you think about that in, in very different spheres? So let me, let me ask this one last question. So you, you were raised in the South and, and now you work as a philosopher in the South in Memphis. What are three things that you appreciate about the South? Because you appreciate it so much that you're back living there. Uh, but what is the thing that you appreciate about the South that makes it unlike any other place in the U.S.? Yeah, so one of the, I guess, top things that I appreciate about the, the South is that the majority of Black folk live here. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know. No, no, that's where they at because they're not in California. I'm just saying. <laughs> I, need, I need to go recruit. Thank you for that. So, like, you know, I mean, I I was at Penn State for a while and, you know, in some ways it was great. I learned a lot. I was very well trained. But in terms of like socially, there weren't there are were a lot of black people in my department. But outside of that, um, when you would go out, it was just you'd see a black person and Wegmans, maybe, but <laughs> and you would like smile really big because, yes, I saw another black person. But <laughs> right. When you're back in the South, you can actually avoid a lot of white people if you wanted to and really just be around black people in a way that just feels it's normalized. And I like how that changes how I think about the world. I'm not primarily thinking about white people, how I come off to white people, because the majority of people that I that I face in my day-to-day encounters when I'm moving about in Memphis is other Black folk. That's really nice. I'm really happy I ended up, you know, back in the South uh, and at an institution that is over 40% Black. So a lot of my students want me to play up 
the ways in which I'm still Southern. And it means something to them that I still have that aspect. What would you, what would you say to people? Oh, I'm sorry. sorry. It, it, it just in addition to what you just said, I'm, I'm thinking about someone saying, oh, all she wants to be around is, 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 is black people. What's wrong with white people? What would you say to that? <laughs> because I understand what you mean, right? But someone might say, I don't know how that is, you know, that's pretty narrow way of, 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 of living. Well, then I would also, I mean, part of the response would be, so does that mean that I, <laughs> why do I have to be around white people? But also part of the, the issue that I have isn't necessarily being around white people, but I don't want my life to be lived around always negotiating how white people are thinking about me. So it is very, it's, it's a little bit different from just are there white people in my, in the spaces that I'm, I'm in. It's more of, there is so much kind of anti-blackness in the world. I want to be able to carve those spaces where I am not caught up trying to defend myself against the racism that I experience. And part of that is what I'm trying to do with the politics of joy. I'm, I was sorry to, to, to cut you off. What other things do you appreciate <laughs> about the South? Yeah, so... <laughs> this, is, this is Black joy in the midst of quarantine. That's, this is what's going on. <laughs> yeah, yes. Right, so the other things that I really appreciate about the South, and these are more Gulf Coast specific, and in particular, Louisiana. So one is the landscape and the language there's really weird dialects that happen in Louisiana. I love them. I think it really gives me an attentiveness to, to language, but also to the drama that's in everyday life. When you grow up with oaks and moss, it kind of lends this ethereal quality to life. I also really appreciate the physical um, ties to land that I have in Louisiana. So several generations of my family go back to the land in Louisiana. Some of the plantations there, my family worked on them. So whenever I walk around in Louisiana, I'm literally walking in the places that my ancestors did. And that's really important to me. Lizzie, thank you so much for this conversation. I really, really learned a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.